Today I'm going to tell you about my visit to Baghdad and Babylon. When I came within a stone's throw of the new Nebuchadnezzar, Saddam Hussein. Let me read you firstly though quite an amazing story. It's taken from that book that was printed about 25 years ago called Daniel. Let me read it to you. An oft-told legend relates how Prince Zimir, upon succeeding his father on Persia's throne, sought for a guiding history of the past. Twenty years after the initial assembly of his learned men, a caravan of 12 camels, each bearing 500 volumes, came to the prince. Following a speech, the secretary presented the 6,000 volumes. Now fully occupied with the duties of government, the king expressed his gratitude. But, he added, I'm now middle-aged. Even if I live to be old, I shall not have time to read such a long history. Abridge it. Condense it. Another score of years passed and three camels came with 1,500 volumes for the king. But, he declared, I am now an old man. Bridge it further and with all possible speed. After a lapse of 10 years, a small elephant carried there abbreviated work, this time merely 500 volumes. We have been exceedingly brief, said the remaining members of the assembly. Not yet sufficiently so, replied the king. My life is almost over. A bridge again, condense. When after five more years, the secretary returned alone and on crutches, leading a small ass, burdened with one large book, the king was breathing his last, unable to read it. Six thousand volumes, fifteen hundred volumes, five hundred volumes, one massive book. Today, not six thousand or fifteen hundred or five hundred or one large book. 200 words that foretold the history of the world. Not even 
about what had happened in the past, but about what is going to happen in the future. 200 words. My topic today is Nebuchadnezzar's amazing dream. I want to appeal today to the honest skeptic, cynic, atheist, a person who believes that the secular world is all there is. And I want you with me today to carefully notice the overwhelming evidence for the existence of a person who was called God. Today, we will not be just talking about faith and saying you ought to believe. We will be saying, do not believe unless there is evidence. And today, I wish to show you the evidence why there is a personal God because in these 200 words that two and a half thousand years ago predicted the history of the world, we see evidence for the supernatural God. I want you please now to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel. And we shall continue our discussions today from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. We're glad to have every person here in church today. And we give you the greatest welcome. We are glad that you are here. Did you notice a moment ago I was searching in my pockets? You know what I was looking for? I was looking for my glasses. And I thought, I looked over there, I said, are my glasses? No, I can't see them there. So I went through my pockets while you've, I got you folks to be looking up the text so you wouldn't see that I was searching for them. And then I thought, how come that I can see so plainly? <laughs> now, I want you to hold up your Bibles. Hmm? Hold them up high. It's good. Now, repeat these words. This is my Bible. This is, my Bible. This is God's Word. God has a message for me today. His message will make me a better person, will transform liars into honest people, dishonest people into honest people, unhappy people into happy people, and will give me everlasting life. I now open my heart and my Bible to receive God's Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1. Daniel, the second chapter, and verse 1, and I'm reading from the New International Version. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. 
Who was this Nebuchadnezzar? We talked about him last week. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the great empire of Babylon. Some have said it was the world's first real empire. How old was he? We think of Nebuchadnezzar because he was the king as being perhaps an old man. He was probably 19, 20, 21 years of age, just a mere boy. People have said to me, skeptics, but you can't believe these stories. This is all folklore. Some time ago, when I was visiting Baghdad in Iraq, I took the road 100 kilometers south, 60 miles south, went to Babylon, right on the great river Euphrates. And there is a vast mound which represents Nebuchadnezzar's summer palace. As I was climbing up the mound, which is just a heap of rubble, with some cuneiform inscriptions here and there, I surprised a jackal. And the jackal ran out of one of the rooms of the palace. I stopped and I had my Bible and I opened my Bible to the prophecy of Isaiah 13. We'll come back to Daniel, but would you please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13 because these words came thundering into my mind. Isaiah chapter 13, dear hearts and gentle people. This book was written about 700 BC before Babylon became a great world power. Isaiah 13 verse 12, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. Just a moment. How did the author know that the Arabs would be in that very area? No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flock there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell. And there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds, jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand and her days will not be prolonged. Every word of the prophecy came to pass. I can testify today that I've seen the fulfillment of this prophecy even down to a little jackal that runs out of the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. But as I climbed the hill with a television crew, we had a television, big television camera. In fact, 
one of the cameras such as we have in the church here today. And uh, we were also carrying the tripod in its case, which looked a little like a big bazooka. So high, so round, big black thing. And then as we got to the very top of the mound, I was somewhat amazed by the attention we had generated because helicopter gunships were circling all around us, all around us. Everywhere we looked, there were helicopter gunships. So we took out the tripod, the bazooka, we set it up, and we started to televise. And I was giving a talk. All of a sudden, a detachment of the Iraqi army with submachine guns came pounding up the hill. The captain ran to me and he said, I can still see his face. He said, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, we are taking pictures of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. He said, where are your papers? I had papers from the great Baghdad Museum, from the director of the Baghdad Museum, one of the greatest scholars in the world. Christian gentleman. I showed him the papers. He said, but your papers are okay, but you should not be here today. I said, we were told we could come. He said, look down there a hundred yards. What do you see? I said, I see a road and a caravan of cars. He said, that is Saddam Hussein. He said, if you had been our enemy, you could have taken him out. He said, nobody, nobody is allowed here today. But then when the excitement died down, he said, why are you taking these pictures? I said, I'm here today gathering evidence. Oh. You're gathering evidence? The next day I was placed under house arrest, in fact for three days, by the Iraqi army. He said, you're gathering evidence? I said, I'm gathering evidence about Nebuchadnezzar's amazing dream. And today, I want you to notice the evidence about Nebuchadnezzar's amazing dream. Would you look at now, would you now look at Daniel 2 and verses 2 and onwards in the Bible. Daniel 2, and we will notice verses 2 and onwards. You ready? So the king had a dream. So the king summons the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. 
But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream. We will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. They do not live among men. Keep reading. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. The story is plain and simple. The king has a dream. Either he's forgotten it or he's not letting on. And as an evidence of their genuineness in interpretation, he asked them to tell him what he dreamed. This is completely reasonable if they can give him a genuine interpretation, it will not be hard for them to tell the king his dream. But these frauds, the magicians, frauds, the astrologers, frauds, every one of them frauds, they say, it's not a man who can tell the king his dream. Ah, how wrong they were. There's not a man. And remember, the gods do not live with human beings. How wrong they were. And so, in a passion of fury, the decree goes forth, kill the frauds. Because Daniel and his companions were considered to be very wise men, they had been placed in the same work union as the rest of the charlatans. And so they go forth to kill the man of God. Now his fidelity to God is tested by the threat of death and will God come through for him. Would you please notice, if you'd look at these words, I want you to notice now the thrilling, wonderful story. Daniel Chapter 2, verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. 
At this time, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Let me read you something about this. As you think of the young dictator and standing before him, the young Hebrew from Jerusalem. Listen to these words. One great commentator said, the king could with a word cause a mighty army to stand girded for war. He could command an innumerable company of servants, but could not decree one hour of sleep. The greatest of men are but men. Why should animated mud be proud? There is no reason for pride for any of us, even the haughtiest politician who stalks across the stage of the world. Soon they will not be animated mud, but they will be mud. As one great scholar said, we are all animated mud on the way to dust. And our only hope is in God. So here is the dream. Daniel says to the king, who becomes his friend, give me a little time. And I believe that God will come through for us. You read about it here in Daniel chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, listen to this, wonderful, marvelous exclamation. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. and You have made known to us the dream of the king. And so... From the ruins of Babylon, there comes a story more exciting than fiction. A young man, Daniel probably, 19 or 20, a prisoner of war in Iraq, Babylon, Mesopotamia, is taken in before the greatest king. You notice verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man. Mm, see what I did? I've done it. I found a man among the exiles of Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king answered, asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream? 
and interpret it. Think of the scene. Scholars have recognized that Babylon, the first great empire, was a counterfeit of the kingdom of God. It was seated upon a broad river. It had gardens. It was an absolute monarchy. It was no democracy. It was a complete representation of the kingdom of God. Many of the rooms in Nebuchadnezzar's palace were covered with sheet gold. So here is the king seated upon his throne, filled with pride and arrogance. In comes a Jewish slave. The king says to him, because the king remembers him. We studied last week Daniel 2. But Daniel and his companions were ten times better than the rest. The king says to him, Are you able to tell me what I dreamed? Daniel's life is at stake as well as the lives of hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Do you think he's overawed? by Nebuchadnezzar? Do you think he's there sniveling, kowtowing? This man represents the kingdom of God and he can stand fearless in the presence of earthly monarchs because he is bowed low before the king of kings. The king says, can you tell me? He says, no. But you can't. Notice what he says. Verse 27. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Look at me. Let me tell you something. The words of this young man, barely out of his teens, echoes down to our own day. There is a God in heaven. And the revelation of the dream was to prove that with an absolute certainty. Let me remind every person that the death of God always leads to the death of man. One great philosopher, theologian said, God died in the 19th century. Man died in the 20th. Why was the 20th century 
the greatest time in the history of the world for the most vicious wars. Why did tens, even hundreds of millions of people die in the 20th century? Because the death of God leads to the death of man. If you and I do not have God in our lives, then nothing can help us. If you and I do not believe in God, we will not believe in man who is made in the image of God. Modern day philosophers have taught that man is simply a cosmic accident, the product of time plus matter plus chance. The human race is nothing more than really a planetary eczema and naught but, but potential fertilizer. So if there is no God, then there is no man. But Daniel has a message for the world today. There is a God in heaven. And this God is a personal God. And in him we live and move and have our being. These coming verses, 200 words, prove the existence of a personal God. Please notice them. Verse 31. 200 words, not 6,000 books, not 1,500 books, not 500 books, not one large book. 200 words, verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck this statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold uh, were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled uh, the whole earth. 200 words. These 200 words, written down some six, 2,600 years ago, foretold uh, the history of the human race down to our own time. Not 6,000 books. What does Daniel see? He sees what the king saw. Great metal man. Head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then the feet, part of iron and part of clay. This is a magnificent spectacle, is this great worldly man. And when you look at him, you see all of the wonderful metals that our hearts covet. But this man has got feet of dirt. He's standing on a very unstable foundation and so is everyone without God in his life. And then as he watches, as he explains to the king, and the king 
is agitated and excited and he's moving forward on his great throne and he, he stammers. He says, Daniel, that's what I saw. There is a God in heaven and he's bigger than my God. That's what I saw. I had a gold. And then he said, the stone, the rock. What is the stone? What is the rock? Daniel now has a captive audience. Nebuchadnezzar said, you told me the dream. Now I believe that what you tell me about its interpretation will be true. Your God is a bigger God than our gods. Amen. Notice the interpretation. Daniel chapter 2. Verse 36, this was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. Ah, look at me. There is one king of kings. But this man was the counterfeit. You are the king of kings, and the head is gold, the finest metal. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In his hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. What joy. What satisfaction. I as the representative of the greatest kingdom in the world, I am the head of gold. Now the great Babylonian Empire, at least the Neo-Babylonian Empire, became a great world power 606-605 BC and continued on until 539 a total dictatorship, perfectly organized and filled with splendor. And the king hoped, as worldly people do today, that their nation or their kingdom will last forever. So this man was absolutely certain that his kingdom was going to last forever. He forgot that we are simply animated mud on the way to dust. And why should animated mud be proud? His joy turns to confusion. Verse 39. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to you. After you. Before I talk about the next empire, let me say a few words about Babylon. I was traveling through Babylon some years ago, got in a party with a famed archaeologist, and as we walked around the ruins of the great city and walked along the street that Daniel had walked along, 
still there. The same stones. No, no stones. The same clay tiles. Two and a half thousand years old. He said to me, most people don't realize that our culture is based on Babylon. Most people think it's based on Rome or Greece, but they got their culture from Babylon. For instance, our religion, or much of our religion, we've all heard of the Ishtar Gate, erected for the celebration of the moon goddess. And from Ishtar, we have Easter. And we work out Easter according to the phases of the moon. As he said to me, so many of our customs and things that we think belong to the Bible are simply Babylonian to the core. It's an interesting thing that Babylon is the head where the thought processes take place. Even after Babylon passed away, the mind continued. I want to read to you from a great scholar. His name is Haskell. It is an interesting statement. When Babylon fell, the principles by which she had controlled others were in turn applied to her. Wherever there is tyranny in government, in any nation of the earth today, it is an offshoot of that root which filled the earth, the Babylonian root. The mysteries of Greece in a latter day were but a repetition of the Babylonian mysteries. Nations and people today, unconscious of their origin, are perpetuating Babylonian religious customs. The influence of Babylon in educational lines was no less marked than her influence in government and religion. And the educational root of the tree was as vigorous as the others. We're in the habit of tracing the educational system of the world to Greece or Egypt. Its principles are older than Greece. They belong uh, to Babylon. So many of the things that happen today among governments, arrogance and pride and a disregard for human lives, these are no part of the religion of the Bible. They are a part of Antichrist, Babylon. And he says, after you. In 539 the Medo-Persians came calling. In Babylon, there was a young, drunken king, you know his name, Belshazzar. He was having a great party. And in his pride and arrogance, he commanded that the sacred vessels that had been taken from the Jewish temple might be brought into his presence. And the Bible says that he and his queens and his concubines and his generals and his lords drank wine out of the vessels of the temple. Listen. God will take a lot, but he won't take the desecration of his temple. 
And as he did it, as he drank from the golden vessels out of the, the sanctuary of the Jews, a bloodless hand came out and wrote on the wall, Manny, Manny, tackle, you fasten. You were weighed in the balances and found wanting. That night, Cyrus the Great, the leader of the Medes and the Persians, had drained the river Euphrates. And the soldiers came wading down the bed of the river Euphrates and they got to the great gates. And for the first time in the history of Babylon, the gates had been left unlocked. Did you know, I say to the skeptic and the cynic, that Cyrus the Great was mentioned long before he was born, hundreds of years before he was born. In the prophecies of, of Isaiah, it talks about Cyrus the Great. Hadn't been born. And the Bible says when Cyrus the Great would come to the Babylonian gates, they would be unlocked. You can read it in the prophecies of Isaiah. And as the soldiers came to the gates, the king inside was drunk. And when the wine is in, the wit is out. And I want to say today to you, the world is drunk today. And America is drunk. The greatest social program in America is the consumption of alcohol. And men who should have clear minds are often inebriated. And so here is the king drunk. The writing comes on the wall and the Persians storm through the gates. And that night, the blood of the king mingles with the red wine of the banquet hall. Medo-Persia rules the world and rules right through until 331. Notice what happens, Daniel 2, 39. Daniel 2, 39. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to you, Medo-Persia. The chest, the chest. Next to third kingdom, one of bronze will rule over the whole earth. That was Greece, the kingdom of Alexander the Great. And... Uh, that was the kingdom of bronze. If you take a lexicon, a Greek lexicon, you'll read about bronze over and over and over again. And Greece re ruled the world from 331 to 168 BC. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. Now notice Daniel 2, verse 40 and onwards. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. 168 B.C. 
there came a new power upon the world scene. The Ein Monarchy of Rome that would break down and trample the whole world, including Jerusalem, that would stand up against the Prince of Princes, Jesus Christ. We are living in the days of the Roman Empire and its dissolution. It says, finally, finally, it talks about the toes and the feet, says it will be a divided kingdom. Between 300 and 500 AD, the Roman Empire was divided into the kingdoms and the states of Europe, and America grew out of Europe. We are there in the prophecy. Iron and clay, weak and strong, and division. The Hebrew language says that they will mingle themselves with the seed of men. And it points to the fact that the kings and the queens of Europe for hundreds of years intermarried in the hope to bring about unity to the world. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, the Roman Empire, and then the division into the kingdoms of Europe. It is one thing to be an honest skeptic. It's an, another thing to be a dishonest one. I say to the honest skeptic, please tell me how a young man in Babylon two and a half thousand years ago in 200 words could describe the history of the human race. Oh, it was a coincidence why can't you have such a splendid coincidence? As the Egyptians said, here is the finger of God. I say to the young people in this wonderful church, do not believe because your parents believe. Do not believe just because you're told to believe. Believe because your belief is based upon the facts and the truth. Some people say, oh, I don't need facts. I just believe. That is foolishness. No wonder skeptics sneer. They have reason to sneer at so-called believers who are so su superficial. True faith must rest on evidence, and I give to you today not some mamby-pamby talk. I give to you today evidence that is based on history and archaeology. Now, we come to the best part. Verse 44. in the times of those kings. We're living in the time of those kings. It means the nations of the world that came out of Europe. The time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. 
This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is worthy. In our church, here we have some wonderful Jewish people, and they should know the Hebrew words Eben and Ben. Eben is stone. Ben, Benjamin, Benoni. Eben is the stone. And Ben is the son. And so Hebrew philosophers would play with the words Eben, Ben. The stone that comes, all the Hebrew rabbis said, is the Messiah. He is the stone cut out of a mountain, but not by hands. The Eben is the Ben, the Messiah. Listen to these words. You and I don't need to worry about conditions in the world. We know it's bad. We know it's going to get worse. We don't need to worry about politics. Who's going to be the next president? We don't have to worry about any of those things. Because God has a plan for the world. Nothing can stop the coming of the rock. Jesus said, I say unto you that your Peter, he was just a little, little rolling stone. Upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus is the rock. And the next great event in the history of the world is the coming of the kingdom of God. Please notice Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Wonderful, marvelous words because Jesus was quoting here from this dream. Matthew 21 Talking to the religious leaders of his day, he said, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He is the stone. And verse 44 says, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Do we understand what this means? It says if you fall on the stone, you're going to be broken to pieces. But if you wait until the stone falls on you, you will be lost for all eternity. He who falls on the stone, it means to fall upon the Lord Jesus. 
It means to be broken to pieces inside. Hard hearts broken. Proud hearts broken. Our sins broken. He who allows the Son of God to break him now will not be destroyed when he comes in glory. Therefore, I need to fall upon the stone. Years and years ago, a person who read this prophecy wrote a poem. It answers the question, what next? Where are we living? Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the ten toes, the breakup of the Roman Empire. Where are we living? First, the Babylonian kingdom ruled the world. Then Medo-Persia's banners were unfurled. Next, after Greece held universal sway, Rome seized the scepter. Where are we today? Down in the feet, made of iron and clay, weak and divided, soon to pass away. What will the next great glorious drama be? Christ and his coming and eternity. The interpretation is certain. Amen.